Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, we're really excited for this episode to finally drop because you are going to be absolutely blown away by it. Because we're talking all things dogs in ancient Greece, from dog names to their use in Greek religion to how they could be used. For instance, their possible use in sieges or in warfare. What do we know about dogs in ancient Greece? To answer all the questions surrounding this, I was delighted to get on the podcast to go and meet in person a couple of months back, Dr. Owen Rees. Owen, he works at Manchester Metropolitan University. He knows lots of things on ancient Greek history, particularly ancient Greek warfare. He's been on the podcast a couple of times before to talk about combat trauma and then to shine a light on the often overlooked important naval clash at Artemisium during the Persian Wars. Owen is also a lovely lad. It was great to go and meet him in person finally and to talk all things dogs in ancient Greece. It was a really fun chat and I know that you're going to absolutely love this one. So without further ado, to talk all things dogs in ancient Greece, here's Owen. Owen, great to have you back on the podcast and great to meet you finally in person. I know, finally, here we are. Thank you very much for having me back. I loved all the times I've been on before and it's great to to meet finally i know enigmas enigmas and mysteries have now been cleared exactly best friends on earth well soon of course you have been on the podcast a couple of times before to talk about the battle of artemisium and to talk about combat trauma in the ancient world those podcasts rocketed when we did those well over a year ago now so we had to get you back on you've been asking <laughs> to come back on to talk about this topic and it is a huge topic because dogs in ancient greece dogs man's best friend even back into ancient greek times yeah, so this is it. I mean, dogs, I mean, I'm a dog lover. Many people are. I know it can be quite a divisive topic nowadays between cats, dogs, and no pets at all. But I am a dog lover. I love dogs. And I also think dogs are a good insight into areas of human culture and human interaction that perhaps we don't see as often. We get to see a level of affection perhaps you're not used to seeing, or we, you know, we see just uh, close friendships between man and dog. You are right. I mean, the cliche is dog is man's best friend you've always got to kind of temper that with but are we its best friend <laughs> you know um so i'm not going to spend today telling you how beautiful these relationships are and how amazing it is and because even today our relationship with dogs aren't brilliant you know for every person who has a pet they adore and love 
There are people who are drowning puppies and there are people who are giving back dogs that they shouldn't have had at Christmas. And, you know, let's not pretend this is an idyllic relationship. We have quite a varied relationship with dogs. We have quite an eclectic use of dogs. Let's be honest, it's as much a use of them as it is a friendship with them. But that is also true in the ancient world. It's true in the ancient Greek world. And you'll kind of see a lot of comparisons. There are a couple of divergences, but it's the same sort of thing. These are mixed relationships with the animal. I think it's quite interesting, Owen, from what you were saying there. You know, we sometimes think of people in ancient history, ancient Romans, ancient Greeks, Mesopotamians or whatever, as being very different to the people we are today. Is dogs an interesting lens through which to realise how, yes, on the one hand, they were very different culturally to the people we are today, but there are still similarities. They are still human. Yes, absolutely. And you can't help, especially if you are a dog owner or a dog lover, you can't help reading some passages or looking at some imagery and smiling because it just looks so familiar. I mean, for myself, I've got two young children um, and I've got two small dogs. And there is a beautiful series, there's a couple of vases that show it, the classical Greek vase of a baby or a toddler crawling on the floor face to face with a small sort of lap dog. And I can't help but smile because I have that exact same photo between my babies and my dogs. So yeah, there is kind of a, not a universality, but very much a common thread that you can associate with. Also true of the dog themselves. Dog behavior hasn't really changed very much. They still want to please. They're still loyal. But you get things like, you know, we have depictions of a dog and a child playing fetch from the classical Greek world. We have, you know, imagery of a, a boy taunting a dog with a turtle sort of dangling above it. And you can see the dog kind of agitated whilst it looks at it. You know, we get images of dogs watching as food gets passed around. You know, it's just so relatable. And it could easily just be a photo in the modern day, but it's not. It's a vase or a painting or whatever it is from two and a half thousand years ago. It's like one of those memes, you know, like how it's been, how it's going. Yeah. How it started, how it's going. And it's identical. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, I mean, you mentioned like the Greek vases there. So let's talk about, let's say, I guess our source material that we have for looking at dogs in ancient Greece. I'm guessing we've got a mixture of literature and archaeology surviving to look at this subject. Yeah, yeah, we certainly do. We actually have quite a lot. We have a lot of varied literature tale of myth. We've got Homer mentions dogs a lot. We've got dogs in historical accounts. We've got dogs in fictional literature. We've got a few manuals from the ancient world generally. Classical world in particular, we have the manual of how to hunt with dogs by Xenophon, which doesn't just go into the details of how to train your dog, but also how to breed them, how to control breeding, what to do with a dog who's not doing as they should be doing. What he even goes as far as to what to name your dog for a good name that is short, sharp, and encourages a quick recall from the dog. So yes, we've got lots of literary evidence, but we've got an awful lot of archaeological evidence. So yes, we have paintings, we have, you know, not just in Greece, you know, there's the famous mosaic, you know, the Roman mosaic of the dog, beware of the dog, just things like that, which again, brings a smile, very familiar. But there's also bones. Like, we have dogs in the archaeological record, in lots of different sites, in lots of different contexts. We also have epitaphs on basically tombstones erected to the dog. Beautiful, you know, no doubt, talk about it later. But again, a very different form of evidence. And what's so interesting about dogs is that we have all these types of evidence that all funnel in to give us a more nuanced understanding of Greek people's relationships with dogs. There's so many avenues we can go down now. You mentioned the lap dog, so we'll go to the lap dog soon. But another thing I know you want to talk about, you want to clarify very quickly, first of all, this whole idea of dog breeds in ancient Greece. Talk me through this. Yeah, the issue is we hear lots of types of dogs. So there's Laconian dogs, there's Locrian dogs, there's Indian hounds and the like. 
Molossian hounds is probably one of the most famous types of dogs. And it creates the impression that these are breeds. And sometimes breed is the useful short term to use. However, you can't look at it like a modern breed. So modern breeding comes pretty much from the Victorian period. So many things do. So during the Victorian period, they, dog breeders decided to divide species of dog by their form rather than their actual function. And this was not really seen before. So it wasn't what they did, it was what they looked like that mattered. And this is where certain characteristics of dogs became more pronounced. And that's how breeds become very drastically different. And that's only over the past sort of 150 odd years. We also see like the introduction of stud books. The bloodline of particular breeds becomes important to prove this. And in the ancient Greek world, that's just not there. Like, there's none of that. However, what they do have is names that suggest regional variation. So dogs in a particular region seem to be a particular way. So, you know, Locrian is a regional denomination. Indian, very logically. Laconian, that's the land in which Sparta sits. The famous one is the Molossian Hound, which is this supposedly big, alleged war dog. The Jennings dog at the British Museum is supposed to be one. To give you an idea of just how complicated this idea of breed is, Aristotle describes the Molossian Hound. He describes it as a type of dog which there are those which are used to hunt, which do not differ from those anywhere else. And there are those which are used to guard sheep and are much bigger and much more ferocious. That's two different dogs. He's just described two different dogs and called them both Molossian Hounds. This doesn't make sense to a modern mind where we have specific breeds. Surely a sheepdog and a hunting dog, a hunting hound, thinner, faster, more agile, and the guard dog, bigger, more aggressive, more strong. Those are two different types of dogs. But in the Greek classical world, they're not. They can both be called Molossian. And then you need to appreciate that they might just be two different types of dogs <laughs> as a result. And going back to Xenophon's manual about hunting, he mentions lots of types of dogs. And he says, you know, particular dogs are good for hunting boar, particular types of dogs are good for hunting deer. But often when he's talking about particular quarry, he'll describe physical characteristics. So they want a small head, they want short legs, or they want long legs, or you want fast, or you want powerful. But when he does that, he doesn't actually then name the type of dog. So what you're getting is pick the dog that has these traits, not there is a breed that has these traits. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. So in that respect, they're just not the same. So there are types, and you'll hear me talk about types, I no doubt will slip and say breed, because it is the way we talk about dogs, but this is not the same as a modern breed, and we shouldn't think of them like that. Don't think of them as set in stone. If we talk, first of all, like, like house dogs, who are domestic dogs, what do we mean, therefore, by this lap dog, which you mentioned earlier? The lap dog, yes, the lap dog. It's not the dog that springs to mind in classical Greece. The dog that comes to most people's mind is the hunting dog. Mm. Various forms, but ultimately the dog that hunts. Which we will definitely get to. Which we will definitely get to. The lap dog is, the most prominent one we hear about is what's called the Miletian dog. Now, this is often translated into English as Maltese. And the Maltese dog now kind of looks a little bit like it. So you've got a small dog, probably about the size of a Shih Tzu uh, or a Maltese. Very fluffy, curly tail, pointy ears, and a very sharp snout that isn't fluffy. It's almost like a Pomeranian. Mm. What do you think of it like that? We see them quite a lot. So like I say, we, the image of the child or the baby crawling is next to a Miletian type dog. And we also see them described in sources quite a lot. So for instance, we see them going to gymnasiums. So, you know, if you're going to go to the gymnasium in classical Greece, you take your little dog. Yeah. Aesop in one of his fables describes people going on a, a sea voyage and taking their dog, almost like a, almost like a companion. 
what we have here is everything you kind of associate with a lap dog. This is a friendly dog. This is a dog in the house. It's supposed to be um, a family dog, a dog you adore, a dog you dote on. We even start to see in some of the ancient evidence, people complaining about spoil Miletian dogs. And for anyone who does not like small dogs, you'll be happy to hear that even our ancient authors moan about their yapping and not barking properly, things like that. It's all very familiar. One of my favorites is there's a epitaph to a Miletian dog we think called Argos, possibly. There's a bit of debate on the translation. We think it's called Argos. But afterwards it says, and he was known as the bull. And the reason why I love it is you've got this tiny little dog running around called Bull, which just kind of screams of having a chihuahua called Titan or Hercules. <laughs> and I just love that they have that same kind of humor surrounding these kind of little dogs. Well, you see it like, like down in, through history. I mean, my mind instantly goes to someone like um, Prince Rupert's dog, Boy. You know, yes. that one which became like the, the hellhound. Yes. The parliamentarians and all of that. And it was just a very small little dog, wasn't it? So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we do often see these little dogs with, shall we say, masculine figures. So there's no sort of sense of effeminacy with these dogs, um, which I think today we do hold that kind of misconception. He says, as an owner of two very small dogs, it's a misconception. So for instance, the Theban commander Epaminondas, there's a small story of him. He's coming out of court. I don't think we're told particularly why he's in court, but as he comes out, he's one, everyone's cheering, and this little Miletian dog jumps up to him and his tail is wagging like the clappers. And it's just a lovely moment. Where well, you know everyone's excited, even the dog, and it you know it doesn't um, bring him down in any way. Perfectly normal, and it's just quite lovely. So yeah, the Miletian dog, these kind of lap dogs are there. They're companion dogs, they're loved dogs, they're adored, and they're doted on in just the same way modern pampered dogs are as well. It's really nice. And I mean, if we went to the other end of the spectrum, if we talk briefly about mythology, mm. because perhaps one of the most famous dogs from ancient history is this huge hellhound of mythology, isn't it? Cerberus. Yes. <laughs> you mean Cerberus? Yeah, of course I do. Of course you do. Cerberus, yes, I do love Cerberus. So you've got this multi-headed dog. The number of heads does vary between the different myths, but ultimately he's a guard dog. He's a guard dog of hell itself, of Hades, of the underworld. Yes, absolutely. He is one of those kind of quintessential dogs. Interesting that he's associated with death as the guardian of hell or the hell mouth. You know, we do see dogs sort of associated with death quite a lot. One of the, op the opening passage of Homer's Iliad, the famous passage about the rage of Achilles. You know, anyone who knows much about it will know that kind of line. And what I think people overlook is at the end of that line is a passage about bodies being left on the battlefield to be eaten by the dogs and the crows. So, you know, whilst I've talked about friendly, lovely house dogs, there are wild dogs, there are feral dogs, shall we say, who are scavenging. And that's an imagery that carries through the entire classical period, you know, to leave people out, to be eaten by the dogs is the greatest offence. And it's just interesting, the dogs are associated with that and service, obviously, with his role. I don't know if he's the most famous dog. Is he? OK, well, you know, I, I, Joe Bloggs here. Yep. Maybe he is. But for me, the most famous dog, the most poignant dog in the Greek world has to be the hound of Odysseus, Argos. It is a harrowing scene at, towards the end of the Odyssey where Odysseus has come home. And he's come home from not only the Trojan War, but his great, I don't know, gap year, whatever you want to call it, his 10 years lost at sea. So he's been gone 20 years and he comes home and he's in disguise and he's met a swineherd who knows him from a young man and he um, doesn't recognize him. And as he's walking up to the palace, he looks over and there in the corner is a flea-ridden mange dog. And it's Argos, his old hunting hound, the hound that he bred himself and he sort of ham-reared, but left as a pup to go for 20 years. And it's 
possibly one of the most emotive moments where Argos, who has been kicked and ignored and battered and bruised for this 20 years because no one else cared about him. No one else cared about him. And there he is on his last legs in his bed. And he looks up and he sees Odysseus in disguise. Dogs are not taken in by disguises. So he immediately recognizes his master. And we're told that his ears drop and his tail starts to wag. But he's too old. He's too tired. He can't get up. Odysseus, in disguise, can't recognize him, can't be seen to recognize him, and he sheds a tear that he immediately has to hide, which he does with success. And as he walks on, the Homeric epic is very clear. Argos watches Odysseus walk on and immediately dies, knowing that his role is complete. His role as the loyal dog is finished because his master is now home. This is the quintessential loyal dog in classical Greece. This is everything that a dog is. And a dog should be. And no matter what life's thrown at him, no matter how long his master's lawyer, he recognizes him and he's doing his duty to the last. Well, I'm getting all choked up now. No, it's a, like, it's a great story. I mean, we might not know, but do we know if like, the name Argos remained a popular name for dogs during yes. the Greek period? It did. Yeah, which is why I mentioned the Miletian, because we think his name might be Argos. Uh, it literally just means swift footed, it just means fast. And if you go to Xenophon's list of dog names, they're often just characteristics. So, you know, quick, large. Bite, big bark, things like that. Obviously, they're a bit more dramatic in the Greek, but that's how they translate. So yeah, swift or fast is a desirable trait. Argos is described as a very fast dog. It just absolutely, it, it does stay as a popular name. And so you mentioned that Argos was this hunting dog. We've got to talk about hunting with dogs in ancient Greece, don't we? I mean, first of all, hunting dogs, what do we know about hunting dogs in ancient Greece? Who would normally own them? I guess I'm not going to mention the word breeds, but I mean, does that kind of vary and all of that? I mean, you take it away. Yeah. So hunting dogs, this is, hunting has always predominantly been an elite pursuit in classical, in Greece. So we are talking, you know, you've got to be able to afford to have dogs specifically for hunting. I mean, if you haven't got time to hunt, you haven't got time for a hunting dog. So we are talking sort of wealthier people. The majority of the types of dogs we're told about, whether it be sort of Cretan, Locrian, even Indian, they are described by Xenophon as hunting dogs. So numerous types. As I said, they are used for, you wouldn't use the same dog for the same, necessarily for the same quarry that you're hunting. So if you're going for a deer, you need a slightly different type of dog than if you're going for a boar. I mean, if you think about the logistics of it, a deer is very fast. You need a very fast dog. I mean, consider a deer hound versus a bulldog in the modern breeds. You know, very different shapes, very different types, very different reasons. You want different things from them. Or perhaps more like a bull mastiff, I suppose, would be a better comparison, actually, than a bulldog. So, yes, so th this is how we encounter hunting dogs. They are the most prolific that we hear about and that we see. It can get a bit confusing because we do see hunting dogs in domestic environments, which doesn't quite fit with how we kind of visualize hunting dogs today, which are often kept outside because mm. you want them to be slightly more aggressive um, than perhaps you want in the house. But there's issues with understanding the evidence and what we're actually looking at. But yeah, so the hunting dog is prominent. It is a marker of prestige. It's also used in art quite differently. So this is the problem with evidence. As soon as you've got something like a dog in a scene of art, you go ask the question, what's it doing there? And there's a couple of ways of looking at it. You can look at it from very much a WYSIWYG approach. What you see is what you get. There's a dog there. There's dogs are there. However, we do start to notice that dogs often appear, hunting dogs often appear in scenes of courtship, especially between men and boys. They also appear in 
scenes where young men are seemingly going through a transition of some sort. For instance, departure scenes, military departure scenes where a young man's going to war. Sometimes we see the dog. And a lot of art historians associate dogs with the chase, hence courtship scenes. It's the chase, it's the sexual chase that's going on. But also with childhood and youth. So, you know, why are we seeing dogs in military departure scenes? Well, it's when a boy becomes a man, he's going to perform his masculine duties. You know, perhaps there's something else going on there. So hunting hounds, yes, there is a very literal use for them, but they also serve other kind of more cultural meanings as well. It's so interesting you mentioned that elite nature as well, because I'm guessing, therefore, well, you know me, big Alexander the Great, you know, kind of that kind of area, because he has a named hunting dog, doesn't he? And he has that, he has... I think he names one of his cities after his dog too. So it's quite, he's always naming them after animals. It's isn't always he? A, yeah, it's either a horse or a dog or something, isn't it? But um, it is quite interesting how the hunting dogs we think of hunting with ancient Greece, whether it's from Xenophon or whatever. But it must be key also to remember that very different to hunting dogs today, as it were. And and actually, perhaps the majority of dogs in ancient Greece weren't these hunting dogs. But they, could we say they were more like these companion dogs? Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Where the predominant types of dogs are. See, this is the problem where our question. evidence comes yeah, to an end, exactly. isn't it? I think for the evidence as it stands, you have to accept that the hunting dog is the most prolifically mentioned and present. And that's pretty much all that can really say. Really, the most prolific dog would have been the... That's really the most, most common dog you're going to come across. It's the stray dog. And this is the dog that's much maligned, looked down on, problematic. You know, these are your scavengers. So, yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned kind of Alexander the Great's dogs and the names. I can't remember Alexander the Great's dog. It's Peritas, is it? Because as I said, Xenophon does go through a list of names and they are quite just revealing. Because again, it's a revealing understanding of their relationship with dogs. So Xenophon like, gives us a couple. You've got like, they all translate as words like spirit, raider, growler, hasty, steadfast. We've already mentioned swift-footed or fast, barker, slayer. That's just a great name. They're not human names. And that's the bit we need to, that, that's the bit that kind of causes a small pause. They're not human names. They don't humanize animals. Whereas, at least in Britain, we do. You know, a dog is a family pet, it has a name. Quite often, people do give their dogs human names. And, you know, it's even got to the point where people dress them and they give them clothes. And it's very common to dress them up. And, you know, there's a real humanization of dogs today that the Greeks do not do. Just as much affection, just as much love. They even bury them, much like they do humans, but there is not that humanization of them. Let's go on to another of these big topics now. And you mentioned it just before we started recording, and it's one I didn't initially have down in my notes, and I should have done. And this is dogs and ancient Greek religion. Now, this seems actually really interesting, quite a big one, isn't it, Owen? Yeah, dogs in Greek religion is fascinating, and it's also rather paradoxical. Firstly, we are told categorically by Plutarch and also by the travel writer Pausanias that the Greeks never sacrificed dogs to the gods of Olympus. Categorical. So you're kind of, okay, so they don't sacrifice dogs, which is not what they said. So actually, we do see dogs used in sacrifice. For instance, we see them used and sacrificed to Hecate, who's not an Olympian goddess. But dogs are used as sacrificial victims for a, a process of purification. This is often where we see dogs used. We see them used in rituals of purification. Sorry, so who was Hecate? Hecate is sort of a chthonic goddess, goddess of the underworld, goddess of this. 
you know, and often associated predominantly with magic and yeah. things like that. Fascinating in our own right. And they, we do hear of these purification rituals. Basically, you sacrifice a puppy and rub it all over the person who needs cleansing. So to the Greeks, pollution, the spiritual state of pollution, what they call miasma, is a serious problem that needs resolving, hence the purification ritual. Now, you can be polluted through loads of different ways. So whether it's through killing someone, you become spiritually polluted as a result, whether through, I mean, even a uh, sort of normal processes like giving birth, become, you create a polluted state. Someone dying in your family, your, your oikos, your, your household becomes polluted for a period of time until it's purified. Now, we shouldn't visualize every time a family member dies, everyone gets a dog rubbed on them. That's not what's going on here. This is a very specific example we're given, but, you know, it, it is there. So they are used for purification. I mean, we also see purification in military contexts. For yourself, Macedonians, and I think even the Thebans, they're both described as marching armies through the dismembered elements of a dog as a purification ritual. So a dog is presumably sacrificed first and then quartered, and an army is marched along a road either side of these bits. You are completely right there, and I was actually going to bring that up, because that happens in Babylon right after Alexander the Great's death, when there's a huge crisis among the infantry, well, it's a bit more complicated, but the sources they will it between the infantry and the cavalry, but basically the generals and Alexander the Great's veteran infantrymen. And finally, there's a reconciliation. And the reconciliation event of the army is to cut a bitch dog in two and to march the whole army in between the two halves of this dog on this huge plain outside of Babylon. It's supposed to be a ritual purification ceremony. It's a ceremony which actually ends with 30 of the leading troublemakers being crushed to death under the hooves of elephants. So wow. it's not very much a purification ceremony in any way or form. It's completely bloodthirsty. It's a symbol of what follows next, but it's a nice link into the next area we're going to go to after this, unless you want to say anything else. Yeah, so go sticking on. with religion for a moment, we do also see it is alleged late source. So you've always got to take those with a pinch of salt. <laughs> it is alleged that the Spartans sacrificed dogs to the god Enyalius. So Enyalius is... Basically, the god of the war cry. He's often strongly associated with Ares. Sometimes they're kind of synonymous with each other, and other times they're very distinct. So we do also get, uh, you know, it's not just Hecate, it's not just as one example. We do also see it referred with Enyalius as well. In fact, Plutarch, late source again, however, himself very knowledgeable about the religious history of his sort of region. You know, he's no idiot. He does know what he's talking about. He's a good researcher. So... Sometimes you do have to listen to him. And he's actually says outright, nearly all the Greeks, nearly all of them, used a dog as a sacrificial victim for ceremonies of purification. So, you know, whether or not we take these specific instances as factual, we have to accept this is probably highly likely. And with other elements of the use of dogs, it doesn't come as a great surprise. In April 1982, armed forces from the United Kingdom and Argentina went to war over the Falkland Islands. This month, 40 years later, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this conflict was all about and what it was like to fight on either side. The sea harriers were flying over when they attacked us. 
they trusted us and we felt we had let them down. I really don't know whom I would be now if I had not gone through that experience when I was 19 years old. You can't take a submarine prisoner, you, know, you have to find it and you have to destroy it. And if it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong. To follow along, tune in every Friday to the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On to the next topic, which is dogs in warfare. Now, dogs in classical Greek warfare, you sent a paper across which is very enlightening on this topic beforehand, so I'm looking forward to us talking about this now. You are, of course, ancient Greek military historian first and foremost, shall we say? Yes, yes, absolutely. So talk me through dogs in ancient Greek warfare. The first thing you need to understand with dogs in classical Greek warfare is that they're not prepared to be there. And this is one of the misconceptions that you often come across. It's regularly touted that the Greeks had war dogs. Now, a war dog, or a dog of war, shall we say, is a dog who is trained and prepared for the military environment. It's not impossible. We know enough examples in later history where it works and it's used. The Greeks did not have this. What they did have was dogs in war. So some of our sources mentioned dogs being used. And whilst you know, we're going to talk about the different uses, you need to understand throughout this, they're not prepared for this. They're not trained for it. They're used more often than not, dogs are used for their natural abilities. So, you know, what can dogs do better than humans? They can listen, they can smell, they can bark, they can create an alarm. So we do see dogs in war, 
We see them as guard dogs. We see them on almost sentry duty, sometimes ad hoc. There's no suggestion that there's like a permanent body of dogs used for this. It's just very much said Naxos, I think it is, where the, the commander sends men out with dogs just to walk the walls. So, you know, if the, if the person doesn't spot it, the dog might to raise the alarm. We also see dogs used in the most common place you'd expect to find dogs in war. You've got to think, why would a dog be on a battlefield if you didn't train it to be there? One answer would be because you didn't bring them. These are the feral wild dogs or the stray dogs that I talked about earlier. They're just about because they're following camp, they're following food, they're following, you know, prospect of eating. The other reason is because you've brought war to where the dogs are, i.e. the civilian sphere, a siege. This is where we see dogs most prominently. I think we mentioned him earlier, Aeneas Tacticus, who wrote this treatise on uh, how to defend a siege, basically, has a few passages on what to do with dogs. And it's because dogs are going to be there. In it, we hear about using dogs for guard duty. We hear about taking dogs and chaining them up outside the walls to basically create an alarm system. We also hear about an ingenious method. I love it. It's the first known example of a dog being used as a messenger. <laughs> messenger dog. A messenger dog. Yeah, exactly that. So he describes the people of Epirus and the people of Thessaly use this system. So they take a dog, they put on what looks like a collar, but actually on the inside of it is sewn a little pouch. And inside that pouch is given a little message. And you send it out into the city. You don't send it out of the city, you send it into the city so that it'll return to its owner. That's the idea. The reason why you're doing that is because Aeneas Tacticus spends half of this book telling you the greatest threat in a siege is betrayal. So if you've got people who you think might, you know, be feeding information to the enemy, you need to secretly pass messages through the city. He's very impressed with this method. So, you know, these are the different things we see. What's interesting about that example is, again, there's no single implication that that dog is trained. So what he talks about is you take a favorite dog from someone, take him to another point in the city, give him the message, and then release the dog. The implication being dogs are very loyal, dogs know where they should be, dogs will go home. The dog would then walk to its master. That's presuming that's a well-trained dog. I'll tell you now, my dog would not do that. It would sniff, it would get lost, it would start eating something, you know. So this is not a foolproof system. <laughs> but this is what I mean, they're not trained. And this is made clear in Aeneas Tacticus because alongside how to use dogs, he has sections on what to do about them. So dogs have a great propensity to bark. This is fantastic. We want them to bark. We want them to raise alarms, unless it's going to give us away. So when you're planning a sally and you're moving men around and you're, you know, to a particular area, if dogs start barking, that can alert the enemy camp that something's going on. Rather nastily, he describes how to solve that problem, which is to cauterize the dog. So he actually says to preempt this problem, cauterize the dogs. He doesn't say where, he doesn't say in particular how, he just says cauterize them. And actually the idea of inflicting pain on an animal to keep it quiet is not unique to the Greeks. We see the Parthians do something similar with horses and their tails. They bind tails very tight to keep them quiet. I don't know if it works. You need to talk to an animal behaviorist about that. But the Greeks definitely thought it worked. The other issue he talks about is in a siege, you've got a problem of the garrison who are defending the walls getting tired. So he talks about, uh, Aeneas Tacticus talks about having three deployments, basically. So you've got ones who are resting, ones who are actually on duty, and ones who are getting ready. So as a result, you've got a lot of men walking around, armor clattering about, as well as the sounds of war outside. This is a lot of chaos. 
This is a lot of noise. This is a scary environment. This is a hectic environment. Dogs freak out. And he basically warns you of this. The dogs will freak out. So you need to tie them up. I should point out before anyone thinks, oh, that's nice. It's nice of him to worry about the dogs. He's not worried about the dogs at all. He's worried about the chaos the dogs will cause by running around in a panic. That's what he's trying to solve. So, yeah, Inner Siege is where we predominantly see the most. And it's probably the only time we hear about them that is believable. We have other instances where it's alleged that dogs are in literally fighting on the battlefield. But how you can envisage a dog fighting a heavily armoured hoplite in a phalanx, I'll leave that to your imagination. It's just not possible. And consider it's very hard to get a dog to charge a line. If it is even doable, that takes a lot of training or a lot of conditioning at least. So, yeah, we do see dogs used in war, but not in a professional capacity and not in a trained capacity. This is probably made clearer by the fact that in the Hellenistic period and the Roman period afterwards, and much later in the modern period, we know what a dog used in the military looks like. We know that they require specific handling. We know that they require specific training. And the Greeks do not have that. And they don't even suggest that they might. The one place you would look to combine dogs and war would be Xenophon himself. Xenophon, as a writer, yes, he wrote about dogs, but he also wrote about warfare. He wrote about training cavalry. He wrote about his own, his own memoirs, the Anabasis. It's his time as a mercenary. He's an experienced man of war. He is fascinated by how other cultures fight war. And he is intrigued by innovation. He also loves dogs. He loves handling dogs. He goes into ridiculous detail on how a dog's leash and collar should be made and how to stop a dog from breeding. And you know, he's really engrossed by dogs. And he clearly likes them, maybe not in an affectionate way, but you know, as a tool, as, as a hunting tool, he definitely is enamored with them. Does not mention them in war at all. Thucydides, the historian of most of the Peloponnesian War, does not mention dogs at all. Herodotus barely mentions them. And when he does mention them, it's highly suspicious to the point where actually when you start to break it down, he mentions them once in the Persian army on a list of things Xerxes is bringing with him that show off how wealthy he is. He mentions lots and lots and lots of Indian hounds, status dog. This is about his wealth. The other time is a small battle between a, uh, a Greek city-state and some peoples in the Balkans. And he mentions they actually had what's called monomachia, so solo duels. One-on-ones. Dogfights, basically. Dogfights. Yeah. A dogfight, a horse fight, and a man, on, uh, man versus man. And this is Perinthus, that, that city-state versus Pionians? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's, that's the one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's often used as an example of, oh, see, because if you translate it loosely, it's man against man, horse against horse, dog against dog for the battle. But that's if you very loosely translate monomachia, machia meaning battle, fight, mono, solo, single, one. It's one-on-one. This is what's going on. Um, If you believe the story, always got to add that caveat. So if we believe the story at face value, we have to accept these are duels. They're not battles. So is it possible the Greeks had fighting dogs? Yes. Is it possible those dogs were used in combat? There's no evidence to suggest that's the case. It's so interesting with all that, when we think of perhaps one of the legacies. I'm just thinking, I grew up with like the likes of Rome, Total War, and all that kind of thing. And a legacy is sometimes you get is this idea of war hounds, war dogs. But when you look closer at the evidence, you see you have this evidence for dogs in war, but not exactly dogs of war. Yeah, precisely that. And it is a really important distinction to understand. 
because it changes the way we understand their experience. So the dogs who are in this environment are scared. The reason why they're so good as guard dogs, the reason why they're so good as sentries is because they're in a hypervigilant state. They are freaking out. They are not happy. They have been taken from their home environment or wherever it is they're uh, kind of kenneled, if you want to use a modern term, and they are chained up outside. That is not where they're supposed to be. Or if, if they're used to being chained up outside, they've been moved to the outside of the wolf. This is not where they live. This is not their norm. And that's why they're such good guard dogs from a human perspective. Look at it from the dog perspective. This is horrific. Absolutely horrific. They are not happy about this. That's one aspect that we need to consider. The other aspect is it's possible that Greek men took dogs with them. The reason why I throw this out there is because a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, departure scenes, soldiers going to war, dogs are in those scenes. Not all the time, but they're often there. Face value, the dog's going with them. And there is some peripheral evidence or sort of indirect evidence that might corroborate that. So for instance, we hear of a guy preparing for the Battle of Salamis. So Athens has been evacuated. He's crossing over to Salamis. He's left his dog. Dog swims that channel, but dies. And he's buried there. The author who tells us about this tells us that the mound to the dog is still there. So it's like this little tourist site. So again, you know, plausible. There's also the painted stoa. Painted stoa is this massive mural in Athens at the Agora. And it's basically the Athenians painted this mural to depict all the important mythological events in their history. It's the Trojan War. It's the battle with the Amazons, stuff like that. But at the end is the Battle of Marathon. Clearly aligning Marathon with the mythological past, the heroes of the past. That's about the importance of that battle. According to one of our sources who claims to have seen it, there's a dog in that image. And if you kind of, if you Google the Stoa, there are like artistic reproductions. And if you look closer, you'll find the dog. And there it is. So yeah, there is allegedly a dog at the Battle of Marathon. Only one. It is interesting though. It seems that sometimes elite figures do bring their dogs with them on campaigns. And we talked about Alexander the Great already, but another example, and this is going into the Hellenistic period, but we have Lysimachus. 80 years old when he's fighting his last battle against Seleucus at Choropedium. And there's one story, and because it, it might just be a story, where he's saying that his dog was there and his dog found his dead master's body and stayed by his master's body for a few days afterwards, basically, you know, as it was wow. rotting yeah. out there kind of thing. But I guess it's one of those examples where it might be fact, it might be fiction. Maybe there's an element of truth based on it in the fact that sometimes people did take their dogs to war and that sometimes, you know, this did happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's not unique, is it? There's also a bit of a, a motif going on there. You know, the loyal dog who'll never leave his master. You know, there's, I think pretty much any town in Britain has a version of a similar tale with the dog that wouldn't leave the graveside. You know, it's such a common trope. And I'd love them all to be true. It's one of those where, it is, you know, is the myth bigger than the reality? But, you know, sometimes you're like, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. Because it's, it's just a beautiful image and it encapsulates the undying loyalty. Of the dog, you know, it kind of echoes Argos as Odysseus comes home. It's the same thing. It's that undying loyalty to the end, and no one can break that bond. You did mention actually earlier Xenophon, something which we haven't talked about, but something which sometimes perhaps overlooked. Collars. The ancient Greeks had collars for their dogs too. They did. Yeah, they did have collars. They had collars. They had leads or leashes. They certainly did. Xenophon does describe an ideal collar. You know, he describes it. It should be soft. It should be broad. And it should not spoil the hound's coat, which is just a really weird mm. uh, tidbit <laughs> just to put in there. But yeah, and the leash should have a noose to hold on to, but ultimately nothing else, which suggests that there are some leads that had more things on them than that. But he doesn't tell us what they are. He just says it should be simple, simple noose attached to the collar, done. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, dogs do come with equipment. 
Dog handling has always been predominantly the same. The more you want from your dog, the more you need to be able to control your dog, the more you need to be able to put it on a, a lead or take it off that lead for whatever you're using it for. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, again, very relatable to today. I wonder if he struggled as much to put a lead on the dog as much as I do on my Shih Tzu. Uh, <laughs> Depends on the dog. Depends I think so. I bet a hunting dog doesn't do this. <laughs> yeah. Some of them, it just depends on the nature of the dog, doesn't it? Not yeah. I do, yeah, I do think that's quite important, actually, because this is the other misconception people have with, you know, with enough breeding and enough training, you can get any dog to do anything. Mm. I mean, you can get most dogs to do a lot, but some dogs are just better at it than others. There is a reason why, you know, guide dogs go through such rigorous training and such rigorous vetting, because not all dogs are made equal for the task, if that makes sense. So yeah, you know, never, you doesn't matter how much training you're going, you can't remove the personality from a dog. Or if you have, you've killed the spirit of the dog. So we've talked about dogs in warfare, dogs as hunting, dogs as companions in the house, a bit about dogs as farming, helping the farmers as sheepdogs, and of course in, in religion and ritual. Now, are there any other key areas where dogs were used in ancient Greece? Yeah, it doesn't make for pleasant listening. Oh, okay. Well, we've got this far, so we might as well. We've this is it. Far. If you do content warnings, this might be the time for it. <laughs> we see them used in medicine, and this isn't pleasant. Dogs are, are still used in a medical capacity to this day, but usually as uh, support dogs in whatever means it is. So, of course, you know, most people are used to seeing it with guide dogs, but you also get dogs that help people who have very severe allergies and can't be around certain chemicals. You know, I've also seen some amazing stuff you see with dogs to help people with PTSD and help them when they become anxious and the like. So, you know, dogs used in a military capacity is not ancient and doesn't exist anymore. We still use it. We just don't use them in the same way. To give you a classic example, it's not Greek, but Pliny the Elder. So we're going into Rome. He talks about Miletian dogs, going back to them. And if you've got a particular problem with your stomach, you've got pain that you need relief of in your stomach, he suggests a remedy where you put a Miletian dog on top of you, which creates this image of like a dog pouring at the stomach yeah. to try and help. <laughs> it's just quite funny, really, when you think about it. It's not for a happy reason, though, because the idea being that the dog gets the ailment and the dog will die so that you don't. Kind of a transference yes. uh, kind of thing. Not pleasant. So, you know, we, we do sort of see these, these images. The Hippocratic Corpus, which incorporates a lot of classical Greek writing as well as later, does talk about the use of dog. And I say dog because it becomes more of an ingredient rather than Pliny, who's used it as, a, as an apparatus. So, I'll give you an example. Puppies are used to solve a problem in gynecological medicine. In ancient Greece, if a woman was struggling to conceive or you know, having some other issue associated with the womb, we do hear of one recipe where you're advised to cook and eat the fat of puppies as your medicine. Basically, puppies were considered wet, they were considered moist, and many of the problems associated with the womb were considered to be because the womb was looking for moisture, or there was an issue with a balance of dry and wet in the female body. So the idea being, add something wet, solves the problem. Okay, So that's one example. Another one, which is a bit more graphic, this is associated with possibly the womb being out of place. So the Greeks do have this concept that the womb can move, and it will move if necessary, usually on the search for moisture. This is associated with many different issues, infertility being just one of them. And so we hear of this recipe where you have a puppy, which you have to kill, disembowel, stuff with aromatic herbs and basically roast it. And then that is used as the basis of fumigation. 
So the fumes are directed through the cervix to the womb. And the idea being that you're giving uh, wet vapor directly to the womb and keeping it in place or bringing it down in place if it's moved or whatever the reason may be. They do have slightly different explanations as to what it might resolve. So yes, we do see dogs used specifically as an ingredient. I can see the look on your face. So I should probably... Yeah, I should probably can't see the look on my face, but it is one of horror, <laughs> absolute horror. You've got to ask the question, why? What was the logic? So I've mentioned the idea of the, the puppy being wet. A uh, counterpoint being, if the issue in the, in the body is that there is too much moisture, you would use an old dog because old dogs are considered dry. There's that kind of simple explanation as to why you're doing it. But there's also other reasons. The dog is, well, the female dog in particular. So the bitch is associated very strongly with pregnancy, also sexual desire. So dogs have this reputation in Greece of being horn dogs, basically. You know, they're constantly either having sex or have sex for a long time. They're also associated, the reason why they're associated with pregnancy is because they're considered the best at giving birth. Large litters, prolific breeders, if allowed to. To the point where the Greeks assume that they have more than one womb to explain why they can have so many. And actually, if you look enough into it, often dogs and human women are compared quite a lot. Pandora, for instance, in Hesiod, is described as having the mind of a dog as kind of a, a simple example. And it's to do with breeding or you know, pregnancy. One of the verbs for pregnancy is kuain, which is dogging, to be a dog, or at least derived from the same word. This is why actually using dogs to assist something like pregnancy to focus specifically on the womb itself makes internal sense in their medical understanding of how the body works. So yeah, so dogs and motherhood, but also dogs with women in general. Strong comparisons. In the Greek mind, I should point out very clearly, not in mine. <laughs> this is a Greek conception. So in the ancient Greek world, if a dog is ever eaten, is it only mainly, I mean, do we know primarily for a medicinal purpose? Literary evidence, yes, it appears best in the Hippocratic corpses, but it appears in basically a list on like your on diet, and it's listed as a dry meat along with pigeon. So these are good meats to eat if you need them. However, we do have evidence of dogs being eaten. The, the Greeks aren't massive meat eaters; they're not a huge meat eating culture during this period. But we do know that they did, and we do know dogs would be roasted or more likely boiled. Dogs don't have a lot of fat on I'm talking like a chef now. Dogs don't have a lot of fat on them. So, you know, you can't, if you roast them, you lose a lot of that moisture. It's going to become very dry, very tough. You know, it's like roasting venison. But you can do it, but you've got to be careful because it has no sort of natural fat. We do have, I mean, like our best evidence for it comes from the Bronze Age, actually. At sort of sites like Lerner and Castro, I think it is, where we have evidence of the bones from feasts and things like that. We also have dog bones at sites of, going back to religion, the sanctuary of, or the, the sacred lands of Poseidon, we have them there suggesting possibly sacrificial feast. There's also one near a site of Apollo as well. So going back to the point about Plutarch, you know, never used it for the Olympian gods, archaeology might ask questions of that. Doesn't disprove it, but might ask questions of that. But the, the eating of dog is not alien. You do wonder in severe circumstances, how long would you keep the dogs around in a siege that's going on for years? Or, you know, if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere and no food, it's not beyond comprehension. But it's not talked about a lot. Let's put it that way. I guess perhaps the most obvious or interesting one, which you probably just highlighted there, was, you know, like if it was a siege and it was really in dire straits, wasn't it? And people, you know, talk like, you see it even in fictional fantasy stories and whatever, you know, first we ate the horses, then we ate the dogs and stuff like that. So I can imagine like, you know, a last resort could be there as well, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's good you mentioned horses because that's a good comparison for this. Today, we consider dogs so differently 
But if you consider it more like a horse, you know, horses today, yes, they're used for elite events. They're also used as workhorses. They're also used as food. So, you know, this is kind of where you should see dogs, you know, no, you would not kill and eat your little lap dog. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't eat a dog. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, are you... I think you'd have to do a separate podcast all about horses and their importance for ancient Greece and all of that. But it's, as you say, it's nice to bring up that comparison, that personal connection someone might have had to their horse as they did to their dog. We've covered all these areas, but let's also talk about dogs and burial in ancient Greece, because we have some evidence for this too, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I've mentioned this a few times. And I think this is a nice way to end it. So we've talked about all the different forms or uses of dogs. So we've talked about hunting dogs. We've talked about guard dogs. We've talked about sheepdog and lap dogs and everything. But I think, and sometimes I can come across as quite cynical in many ways, but I think it's important to end on just how much affection was felt for these dogs by their owners. And we see this most clearly in burials. So I mentioned the, the guy at Salamis, whose dog died swimming over, and then the burial there. And it's not, it's not unique. We, we actually have a remarkable amount of epitaphs, so like inscriptions, dedications to dogs that have died. I mentioned the one about the small lap dog who we find out his nickname was Bull. You know, little things like that. It's just nice, very poignant. It gives us a little bit of insight into, you know, the interactions between man and dog. But there's also quite some really heart-rendering ones that kind of draw upon our image of Argos and Odysseus and that kind of the real pain that's felt at the loss of a dog. And like my favourite one has to be, uh, we only have the epigram itself now, but it basically calls upon the viewer. So you who passes me by, do not laugh. I pray, do not laugh, though it is a dog's grave, for tears fell for me and the dust has heaped above me by a master's hand, who likewise engraved these words on my tomb. It is just a really emotive inscription where, one, the master is laying his heart out, and, you know, he, he creates the idea of him literally digging the grave himself, putting the sand on top or, the, you know, filling it himself. This is all done by his hand. Shows the due affection and love he had for that dog. And what I find really sad about it is that line, don't laugh. And it's the idea that it would cause derision for people who don't understand, people who don't have dogs. Because it's not unique. This is just one of numerous epigrams and tombstones and things that we have that say very similar things, you know, the love and the pain that is felt in the loss of that dog. So in that way, there is a real sense of continuity and familiarity with this relationship with dogs. And I think death often brings that to the fore because it's at that point that you see true feeling and true emotion. Of course, as a piece of evidence, you wouldn't raise a tombstone of any sort to a dog you didn't like. But for this, I just don't think that's important. I think what's important here is that people love their dogs that much and that it was possible to love that, your dog that much. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not because we love dogs, but more than anyone else used to love dogs. We've covered that at the beginning. That's a gross misrepresentation of our relationship with dogs. But there is always that strong undercurrent of this close affection with your dogs. Oh, and I think it's really nice that you ended with that as well because it's so relatable too. And you know, as we started talking about how you know, these ancient people are different from us in so many ways, but there's also similarities. They are, we're all human after all in the end. And one of the clear ways to see that is sometimes through the treatment of their dogs. And like for me, you know, I've lost a dog, you might have lost a dog mm -hmm. as well. And you, and you can relate to those feelings of loss of sadness. I, if ever I watch Marley and Me, one of the <laughs> only movies where I do that is the ending of Marley and Me, I must admit, no shame on it at all. 
But as you say, it's that really nice, relatable feeling there, especially when we're talking about people who lived more than 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up films like Marley and Me, because I must admit, I, uh, I refuse to watch any film where a dog is killed. It's just wrong. Like, the dog should survive. Marley and Me is a hard one, yeah. Two and a half thousand years plus, if you consider Homer, you know, these are the same emotions, it's the same relationships in so many ways. And while there are differences and there are key differences, there is that keen relatability. Owen, this has been an awesome chat. Lovely to meet you in person. Last but certainly not least, tell us a bit about your work. And you've written a few books as well. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I'm trying to think. I think I've <laughs> sold everything I had when I've been on here before. So more recently, my, I have a book coming out in February. It's an academic book. It's what my PhD has become, which looks at how men transitioned from the domestic sphere in classical Athens to war. So how were they prepared for? How did they leave? How did they depart? And also, how did they come home? and their interactions with their families, their dogs, comes up. So yeah, so that's the latest one that's coming out soon. And I've also just signed a contract to write a book of a global history of the ancient world. Basically how people lived away from the centres of culture. So rather than looking at Athens and Sparta for Greece, I'm looking at actually what did life look like at the Black Sea? What did it look like in the south of France as a Greek? or as a Roman, or as an Egyptian, or Nubian, or whatever it be. Very, very cool indeed. Keep in contact about that when it comes out in due time. Owen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Owen Rees explaining all about dogs and their use in ancient Greece. That was a really fun chat, and I really do hope you enjoyed it. If you want more ancient content in the meantime, if ancient history is literally now spewing out of your body, fantastic, that's what we wanted. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. If you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated as we continue to spread the ancient history love further and further afield. And I will see you in the next episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.